0: Open your Bibles, if you would, to Romans chapter 1. We have a a Bible available for you if you didn't bring one and you'd like one. The ushers have one for you. Just lift your hand up, they'll find you. Romans chapter 1. We are in, I think, week, this is week 6 of our Roman study. We've got about another 17, no, we've got another 18 months left. So uh, here we go um, of digging into the book of Romans I'm not uh, too strange, I don't think. I mean, maybe a little, but I find it interesting how people respond to bad news. I mean, you get a little perspective at personality and everything else. Some people are the uh, overwhelmed, like, you know, the whole distraught part of bad news. Uh, so, some people are the kind of folks who are half full and so they look on the bright side of every bad story and then there are those who just like do the head in the sand routine, you know, the very, just, just deny, deny it's bad news and maybe won't so bad. We happen to be in a section of scripture that theologians call the most terrible passage in all the Bible. So maybe we'll get a little glimpse into how you respond to bad news because we're in it deep at this point. In fact, we've been in it for the last uh, three weeks, this is week four, in the discussion of what theologians call total depravity. Man's sinfulness from God's perspective and Paul is just burying us in evidence of our guilt. And so it's a It's a section of scripture that describes every human heart's condition and it's not one of those bad news stories where you can just deny it or bury your head in the stand or think positively about it. There isn't any kind of form of reaction to what Paul describes for us here that will fix the problem. You understand? I don't care how optimistic you are or how easy it is for you to get on with your life. What Paul says is so huge about the human heart and it is bad news. And we, we didn't pick it for Mother's Day, it just happened that way. So here we are, wonderful day, thanks moms, but we're going to talk about the problem with our families, I mean, right, the, the issue of sin. And so I love the fact that God is good at putting us in the right place at the right time because some of you are here only because it's Mother's Day. And you're going to hear a story about sin that you don't want to look at. It's like this giant mirror, to be honest with you, God's going to hold up in front of all of us today and reflect back to each one of us our problem and how God takes that problem. It's, it's a big deal. Um, and we're going to leave with one conclusion today. Sin is so horrible. It is so terrible. It has so affected every human heart to such a great degree that the, there's only one conclusion. People need a Savior, right? Right? And that's way at the end. We're going to go through all the gory parts of what Paul says to build his case for that. But we're going to get to, we need Jesus. And Jesus is why we sing, and he's why we celebrate, and he's why we take communion together, he's why we join together, he's why we forgive, it's because of Jesus. And so in order for us to really understand Paul's argument, we're going to have to back up a little bit in what we've studied already and get another run at it, okay? Because we last two weeks we talked about homosexuality, the biblical theological view of homosexuality from God's vantage point. And then last week we talked about how the church is supposed to respond to people with, with that struggle or our culture or whatever it might be. But in order to get Paul's argument, that was just the little middle piece of a long run-on sentence about sin and how pervasive it is in the heart of men. Get it? So that's why we got to back up a little bit and run into it. So I want you to read with me verses 18 and 19, and then we're going to skip the verses 21 to 22 and then jump to 24 and read all the way through the end of the chapter. Let's get it in context. I want you to look for some repetitive phrases, okay? Key to understanding any author's intent is to understand really his thrust, and you get his thrust from his repetitive nature. So there's some repetitive phrases in there we want to pick apart here. Let's start in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Now skip down to verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Now down to verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, For the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil and covetousness, malice. They are full of envy and murder and strife, deceit and maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Did you notice the repetitive phrase there? In verse 24, 26, and 28, God gave them up. It's really one word in the Greek. It just simply means sort of that, God gives up. Not like God walks away or walks off duty or ceases to be God. That God simply removes his care, removes his guiding hand from sinners' lives who say, I don't want you, and I don't want your controls, okay? So when man pushes back against the authority of God, you would think that God would just smash us, but God's judgment, his wrath by Paul is described as saying, all right, you want it? You got it. You want sin? You want rebellion? Then it's all yours. And it's the third time, by the way, that Paul has used this word. And I want you to notice something here. That each time Paul uses the word, he's adding another set, step down the descending spiral of sin, okay? Now, you might read this passage and go, well, it doesn't sound that way to me. Like the last two weeks talking about homosexuality, that seems like the bottom rung of sin. Like when man gets so wild that he goes sideways on natural order of things. But I want you to get Paul's argument here. There is something that happens to the heart of man that, that looks like Even gossip and slander and maliciousness and disobedient to children, things that were common to all of us. And and so we're going to make a case for this being the most horrific description of all of the declining order of sin. There are two truths and and one conclusion to this study. So if you'd like the outline right up front and get it out of the way, here, here it is. Here's the two truths. Sin is progressive and it's deadly. Sin affects everyone. There's no one who doesn't have sin. And the third is the conclusion. Everyone needs a savior. Everyone needs Jesus, and that's Paul's argument. Even though we've been five weeks in it, that's all that's here. Sin is that bad. We're all sinners, and we all need Jesus. There has always been a progression to sin, and and you know that, right? Right? Everyone who's lived any life at all knows, yeah, sin kind of starts here, and it kind of gets bigger. It just kind of gets out of control. You see that truth all over the scriptures. In fact, David, who writes even in the beginning of Psalms, in Psalm uh, chapter one, says this. Look look at the progression and how sin can grow. He's actually describing sort of a, a little progression of sin when he says, blessed is the man who walks Not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. There is a progression. You're kind of walking, and then you're loitering, and then you're sitting down and enjoying sin. And and all David is saying, like, listen, blessed is the man who avoids that progression of sin. Because that's how it happens. It takes over all of us. There is also a great illustration in Genesis 19. You don't have to turn there, but it's the story of Lot. Remember the story of Lot? Here is what the Bible says: that Lot moved near Sodom, then Lot moved into Sodom, and then Lot had to be dragged out of Sodom by his own resistance at the death of his wife to get out of Sodom. There is some like hooks that sin brings to men that traps us in it. In Second uh, Samuel. You see David's life. Here's the king, right? Man after God's own heart. He's out on the deck in the cool of the evening. He looks down and he sees this woman, this beautiful woman named Bathsheba, and he takes another look. I don't know how many looks he took, but he took enough to do something about it. And then he basically just calls for her. He has sex with her. He lies about it, covers it up, kills her husband, and the baby dies. Sin has a progression to it. You can't control it. You don't have the ability to manage it. Tim Keller said this about sin. Listen how cool this line is. You don't commit sin. Sin commits you. That's what sin does. It traps us. All of this sin, this huge downward spiral of sin, by the way, started with one sin. Look at verse 21. I'll show you what it is. For although they knew God... And by the way, if you like to outline your text, you can just write down around verse 21, the problem. Because this is the problem. This is where all sin comes from. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God nor give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. There is a word that everyone's familiar with that describes this problem right here. It's the word pride pride when it says, okay, maybe there's a God, maybe there's not a God, or maybe there's a God and he has no rights to dictate terms to my life or, or to speak into my life or to say no or to say yes. And, and ultimately when you read this passage, you see Paul describing people who are stiff-arming in effect God saying, it's not the truth for me. It doesn't apply to me. I'm the exception to the rule. I blow you away. I just forget all about you, God, and I do what I want to do, right? And it's pride. That's how sin starts. And that just one sin, I want you to know how subtle pride is. Just that one sin leads to a list of 21 vices that Paul buries us with in verses 28 to 31. So we said this a couple of weeks ago. But what we think about God will either lead us to him or away from him. And let's be really honest, right? There is just one of two realities shaping our lives at this very moment. Only one of two. And it it describes everybody in this room and in the conference center today. We are either being shaped Or by God into his image, or we are shaping God into our image. We are conforming and consorting God so he's comfortable, and he's easy, and he doesn't confront sin, and he has no standard, and he won't judge me, and he likes my choices. We either make a God like that, and I can live happily ever after, so to speak, or we're being shaped by the authority of God, who God decides he is, and we're falling in line with that. One leads to life, the other leads to death. Do you understand? The scriptures say one leads to eternal judgment and God's weight, and the other leads to freedom and salvation. There's are the only two options. So I want you to notice the downward progression of sin. Again, we're backing up a little bit. We're trying to get an understanding of Paul's argument here. Verse 24 Here's what Paul says, therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. Now here's all he's talking about. Here's this first reaction to saying I don't want God. He, Paul says is sexual sin, you know, sleeping around. We have people in our church who just don't think it's a big deal. I'm single. Everyone's doing it. Why not? And they just sleep wherever they want to sleep. And there are, there are grown people who are married, who are committing all sorts of adultery and, and things like that. And I understand the struggle. But Paul starts the argument of the descending spiral of sin by saying, this is what happens when God gives them over. They just sleep around. But it's natural. Natural in the sense that, that the human body, the male-female attraction, God invented. And so that's the area in which they run around and hurt each other. Now look at the descending next step in verses 20, verse 26. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchange natural relations and their men exchange natural relations. We're talking about homosexuality. Next step, down the progression. It's sexual sin, but no longer natural. It goes against the created order of things. That's Paul's argument here. Look at it. It's obvious. They hurt each other by their sexual sin, and now they go to another place of perversion where they deny how things are made. And then we have step three, and I want to argue that this is the worst step of all. You might be judgmental and going, well, those are sins I would never commit, so I guess I'm better than most. Well, verses 28 to 31 kills us, kills every one of us, right? And that's what Paul's trying to get at. We're all sinners. Every one of us need a Savior. And this is the deepest darkness of all. So it is this. Look at verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, he gave them up. What's that next phrase? To a debased mind. The Greek for debased mind is one that submits to counterfeit reasoning, somebody who lines up under lies, like commits their minds to falsehood, rejection, and disapproval. It, it describes a mind that is so twisted by sin that it can't make moral judgments anymore. Do you understand? Like if you were on your own, you could look at something and go right and wrong, good or bad, right? Right? But this is the kind of twisted of the mind that, that depravity does to human hearts that it no longer can make moral assessments. So this is going beyond deliberate sins like sleeping around, going beyond deliberate sins like choosing to sleep with the opposite sex. This here is something more dark and more frightening. Even though they know there's a God, verse 21, they deny it, and Paul says that man has now lost his desire and his ability to think clearly. In other words, he goes spiritually insane. He loses his mind. He doesn't have a compass anymore. Let me put it in a way you'll really understand, okay? When man now calls good bad and calls bad good, spiritual insanity, that's the last rung of depravity in the human heart. And every one of us struggle with that. James Boyce said this about these verses. Listen, I was puzzled by the sequence until I realized that the depraved mind about which Paul is writing is not just any sinful mind. He has earlier talked about the generally foolish minds and generally darkened hearts of human beings, but about the specifically depraved mind created by continuing down this awful path for a lifetime, at the end is a mind not merely foolish or in error, but is totally depraved. It's a mind so depraved that it begins to think that what is bad is actually good, and what is good is actually bad. May I say it? It's the mind of the devil. Which is what Adam chose to pursue when he followed the dangling carrot. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. But Adam did not become like God, knowing good and evil. He became like Satan. And beginning, being like Satan in time, he came to call good, bad, and bad good. How else can one explain man's continual flight from him from whom alone all good gifts come? You can see it, right? You can see it. God says, here, listen. Listen. I invented life. I made life for you to enjoy, and I'm into your happiness. Live like this. So man says, I don't believe God. I I think he's lying to me. I think he's holding out. So what I want is my version of happiness, and the descending staircase of sin leads to saying, God's wrong, and now these bad things are good for me, and these good things are bad for me. That's what sin did to us. Our great-grandfather Adam started it, and we're all in it now, right? Right? That's the connection of sin. And so here in verses 29 to 31, Paul lists 21 sins that basically show the total disorder brought on by the rejection of God. It started in verse 21 with the pride of saying, I don't want anything to do with him. And all this stuff comes out of us at this point. I I don't want to read it again. I, I want to read a paraphrase. Eugene Peterson says this in such a blunt way. I want you to get maybe another angle at how weighty and how total sin has damaged us. Listen to this. Since they didn't bother to acknowledge God, God quit bothering them and let them run loose. And then all hell broke loose, rampant evil, grabbing and grasping, vicious backstabbing. They made life hell on earth with their envy, wanton killing, bickering and cheating. Look at them—mean-spirited, venomous, fork-tongued, God-bashers, bullies, swaggerers, insufferable windbags. They keep inventing new ways of wrecking lives. They ditch their parents when they get in the way. Stupid, slimy, cruel, cold-blooded, and it's not as if they don't know better. They know perfectly well they're spitting in God's face and they don't care. Worse than that, they hand out prizes to those who do the worst things yet. True? This is where we're all caught. We're all caught in the dragnet right now. Every one of us are this. Every one of us has struggled with these sins. Tim Keller kind of, instead of us digging through each sin... Tim Keller does a great thing. He packages them in what he would call the total disorder of mankind. Like, So if you want to look at your life and go, is there any category that's not messed up and jacked up by sin? Well, it's not true. This just covers everything. Let me, let me prove my point. Tim lays it out in five categories. One he calls economic disorder, greed and covetousness. It messes up how you feel about life and what you think you need and money and things like that. He also adds social disorder like murder, strife, deceit, and malice. Family disorder, disobedient children, racial disorder, relational disorder, I'm sorry. Gossip, slanderous, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. And then character, character disorder. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, and inventing evil. (laughs) When it comes to creation, like having the, the characteristics of God, We can be a type of God. We're created in His image, so we're creative. This is the only thing we do that God doesn't and can't. We create evil. We invent it. We come up with new ways to do bad things all the time. That's a character disorder. And every bit of our life is affected by sin. Nothing's the same anymore. Nothing. Nothing is left unaffected. Nothing is pure anymore because sin has made us spiritually insane. Do you understand? It's twisted us completely to such a degree that bad is now good and good is now bad. Do you see that in your world? Some of you do. I was reading in uh, an article um, and there was a quote by the American Psychological Association that said that 40 to 50% of American marriages end in divorce and there's one reason for that because that's the definition of how I'm supposed to be happy. Mankind is on a dead-on pursuit to find his version of happiness. And if people are in the way, if commitment's in the way, if covenant's in the way, lose it. If you're old enough to know those stats, it feels like yesterday when it was like 10%. And now it's 40 to 50? Are you kidding me? And we celebrate it. We Celebrate your freedom, your choices. I mean, Tyler used this illustration last week when it comes to the same-sex issue where, where Collins, the center for Boston, came out and said that he was... He was gay, not just gay, but in a relationship. And, and so I guess it was the first time ever that there was an active professional athlete coming out. And so what did our world do to that? Everyone applauded him. When At- Richard, who was a commentator on ESPN, was asked, what, is, what does the Bible say about that? He simply said, sin is sin. God calls everything like that sin, like heterosexuals sleeping around is sin. Homosexuality is sin, and they killed him. Now good is bad and bad is good. You see? Twisted minds can't even perceive it. It seems right. I don't know if you saw this or caught this, but this was a week and a half ago. This is dated May 1st, uh, 2013. The Pentagon has released a statement confirming that soldiers could be prosecuted for pr- promoting their faith. Religious proselytization is not permitted with the Department of Defense. Court martials and non non-judicial punishments are decided on a case-by-case basis. And the administration in the Pentagon... They've had these meetings, um, and with some extreme anti-Christian uh, folks, by the way, to develop a court-martial procedure to punish Christians in the military who express their faith in Christ. So one of the guys who's kind of the key guy in this, he wrote this statement. Christians, including chaplains, sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ in the military, are guilty of treason and committing the act of spiritual rape. A serious crime is sexual assault. He also asserted that Christians sharing their faith in the military are enemies of the Constitution. Good is wrong, and bad is right. And it looks insane. Because that's Paul's argument. You keep going down these steps, you end up twisted. There is another example uh, of spiritual insanity. There's a philosopher at Princeton named Peter Singer. I don't know if you know much about him, but this is what they say of this guy. New York Times has commented that um, as a thinker and as a philosopher, no one has more influence or had more influence on American culture and society than this one guy. Um, The New England Journal of Medicine said of Peter Singer, he has had more success in effecting changes in what is considered acceptable behavior than any philosopher okay? So I don't know if this is true, but let's at least discuss what people think about what he says, okay? So he um, one of his views it, it moves far beyond the whole issue of same-sex marriage, because for him, that's intellectual child's play. It's already been decided, logically decided. He says it's time now to move on to palomery, which is a new category some of you might have not heard of. Why politicians today debate On the definition of marriage between two people, Mr. Singer argues that any kind of fully consensual sexual behavior between two or 200 people is acceptable. Anything. Men, boys, it doesn't matter. Acceptable behavior. There's another category of questioning he was asked about. Specifically, what about parents who are conceiving and giving birth to a child specifically to kill that child and harvest its organs to implant in an ill child's life? And he says that also is acceptable. Now, you can sit here and go, gosh, it's a no-brainer. That's just wrong. It's wrong, right? It's wrong. Well, what you're reading here is simply a description of what Paul has described in verses 18 through 32. When man rejects the truth of God and the reality that he's authority and he dictates the terms, the descending order of sin means you end up insane. You don't know right from wrong. And you're making choices and making excuses for your life. You're not living under the authority of God or his word. And every one of us have been there. Maybe not making stupid statements about one or two hundred or harvesting organs from a living child to save a dying child. Maybe we would never say that. But every one of us have places when we go, that one doesn't apply to me. That feels right or that feels wrong and we're twisted in our thinking. And that's Paul's argument here. Verse 24, the downward spiral of sin, God gave them up and lusted their hearts to impurity. In verse 26, he gave them up to perversions, where they go now to unnatural things in their sexual expression. And then the ultimate big, huge hammer fall is that God gave them up to a debased mind. Now, that all sounds bad, but there's one more bad step, and it's really scary. Look at verse 32. It's what happens when a person or a society ends up fully turning itself away from God. Here's what he says. Though they know God's a decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. Paul has a very simple three-point outline here that happens to people when they turn from God. One is they know they're doing wrong, they do wrong anyway, and they praise sin and sinners. That's what happens. And so Paul says this is the bottom rung. This is the descending finish line of depravity that makes us all guilty sinners are celebrated for their sin sin morality is hated wrong rules the culture and truth is ignored sound familiar sounds like America 2013 yeah it does there was a there's a writer named Carl Wilson in a book called Our Dances Turned to Death who studied how ancient cultures declined. Like, what happened to Rome? What happened to Greece? I mean, these were the superpowers of the earth. They had systems and economies that would seem to to survive. But he makes an argument for this descending order of sin and how that's the reason why we don't see these these societies anymore. Okay, so, and by the way, i got to give a little caveat to this. He gives us a list. I think the list is out of order. Nevertheless, I think they're good descriptions. Here's here's where sin starts, right? It starts in verse 21. When men reject the reality of God, then everything else is up for grabs, right? He kind of puts it in reverse order that somehow the conclusion is rejecting God. I say rejecting God comes first. Nevertheless, listen to the description. In his book, Our Dance is Turned to Death, Carl Wilson identifies the common pattern of decline in ancient Greek and Roman Empire. Notice how these parallel our society. The first stage, men ceased to lead their families in worship. Spiritual and moral development became secondary. Their view of God became naturalistic, mathematical, and mechanical. In the second stage, men selfishly neglected care of their wives and children to pursue material wealth, political and military power, and cultural development. Material values began to dominate thought, and the man began to exalt his own role as an individual. The third stage involved a change in men's sexual values men who were preoccupied with business or war either neglected their wives sexually or became involved with lower class women or with homosexuality ultimately a double standard of morality developed the fourth stage affected neglecting the and uh, the roles let me read that back again the fourth stage affected women the role of women at home and with children lost value and status. Women were neglected and their roles devalued. Soon they revolted to gain access to material wealth and also freedom for sex outside marriage. Women also began to minimize having sex relations to conceive children and the emphasis became sex or pleasure. Marriage laws were changed to make divorce easy. The fifth stage, husbands and wives competed against each other for money, home and leadership and the affection of their children that resulted in hostility and frustration and possible homosexuality in their children. Many marriages ended in separation and divorce. Many children were unwanted, aborted, abandoned, molested, and undisciplined. The more undisciplined children became, the more social pressure there was not to have children, and the breakdown of the home produced anarchy. In the sixth age, selfish individualism grew and carried over into society, fragmenting it into smaller and smaller uh, group loyalties. The nation was thus weakened by internal conflict, The uh, decreased in the birth rate, produced an older population that had less ability to defend itself and less will to do so, making the nation more vulnerable to its enemies. And finally, unbelief in God became more complete parental authority diminished, and ethical and moral principles disappeared, affecting the economy and government. Thus, by internal weakness and fragmentation, the societies came apart. There was no way to save them except by a dictator who rose from within or barbarians who invaded from without." Now, I, I think the order's backwards, but it sounds familiar, right? And, and this is not about Americana. This is not about red, white, and there's Nothing to do with anything. I only read this to say, when men reject the truth and authority of God, men twist themselves down the spiral of sin and depravity, and they're left at the bottom. Every one of us are guilty. And looking at stuff that we would never look at before and say it's right, or looking at things before that were totally wrong and, and saying, I could never do that. We're now in it. Up to here in it. Total depravity. For some of us here today, we just felt the cold shiver, like, oh my gosh, I'm living in that world. Or some of us just said, did a kind of personal assessment and you concluded you're okay because your life isn't like that. Well, here, here's a question I have for you. Is it really okay? Because sometimes you can read stories about depravity and God's judgment on sin, and it's always about other people. It's so easy to see sin in other people, but... So difficult to see sin in ourselves, so Paul has just made this observation that when the downward spiral of sin is in full effect, men get jacked up and they twist and lie and they celebrate sins so how are we doing with that in your own life and only God knows right now how are you doing with Sin and celebration of sin. I, I thought I might go back to Paul's list of sins, not do with all of them, but just a sampling and ask you some questions of, of which you have to answer in your own heart and see if there's some connections to suddenly twisting truth. What, what if we started with the economic disorder that, that Keller laid out there, the greed, covetousness? Let me ask you about your credit card debt. Let me ask you about your lifestyle. Let me ask you about stewarding God's resources, because they're his, right? Is not what you have belong to him? Anybody have a problem with that truth? Okay, so do you feel like you're the conduit of God's resources that biblically the Bible says you should be, or are you now buried under greed? I wouldn't know. You would. God would. You, you know, and, and America, Christian America, lives here justifying all sorts of extravagance and living on the ragged edge or living over the edge when it comes to money that maybe, maybe when Paul describes what it's like to say bad is good or good is bad, we cut ourselves some slack when it comes to how we live and say it doesn't apply to me. After all, I go to church, right? What if we went into the family disorder thing that Keller kind of categorized for us? Disobedient children. Disobedient children. And I know what happens. We have a tendency to put that on the kids, but I want you to know, when there are disobedient children, it's mostly a parental neglect. I can prove that. The Bible's really clear about this. So the question would be, are you indulging your kids? Do you let discipline slide? Do you refuse to do the hard work of raising your children? Raising children means it's every minute of every hour of every day of every week of every month of your life until they leave. It's the hardest job you'll ever, 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 ever have, making a person. It's, it's, worse, it's harder than anything you'll ever do. Have you tapped out on that? Do you just offer empty promises or threats, or do you not lead them spiritually? Do you understand? And I, here's what I'm saying. That looks like an easy one, just cut yourself some slack. Hey, I'm not struggling with same-sex attraction, but my kids are out of control. And I'm too busy doing other things that are more important to me. And I am not taking the role of stewarding this life. What what about relational disorder? There's one word stuck out to me, gossip. You know, every time you refuse to tell a gossip to shut up, you are celebrating the sin in the center. Do you understand? When someone comes to you to dump this venomous garbage on you to get you to own their angle and to hurt other people, and you don't say, and you just sit there quietly, like you think you're being innocent because you're doing nothing, and you sit there quietly without even trying, you're giving approval to sin and the sinner. Do you understand? The Bible gives us a role to play in each other's life, like stop. Don't tell me anything. Go to the person. But how often do we just kind of absorb it? And it's the same thing as the church going, yay for gossip. It's it looks spiritually insane cuz that's exactly what's going on. What what about character disorder? I'm going to ask you one question. You just let it do whatever it does. What used to be wrong? Remember where we started in this thing? Like sin sin doesn't stay here, it just gets bigger and bigger. It takes more and more place in your life. So my question is what used to be wrong? I think every one of us should go through that tutorial and feel like, oh, my gosh. I had this conversation with Jake each last week. We were reflecting on a very old black-and-white TV show, the Dick Van Dyke show. you Remember? In, in that era, they couldn't show a married couple sleeping in the same bed. They had twin beds. Remember? Well, now we have Temptation Island, which puts married couples on an island so they'll cheat on each other. That's, that's modern. Day. Things have changed. And we record those shows. We applaud the evil. So, and and this one kills me. Every one of us have smartphones. I have one. I have an iPad. Someone used this illustration. I think it's a great illustration. Every one of us who have a smart device have a portable strip club, casino, and a gossip chat line in our pocket. And sometimes because nobody knows or we can erase our history or we can have a good week, we just write it off. Like, isn't that the common struggle? Like, isn't that just part of it? What used to be wrong? What what used to be, oh, that's clearly over here, and that's over here. Now we're just kind of becoming like it. It's like the frog in boiling water illustration. Just kind of warm up to it, right? So Romans 1, and I'm sorry, ladies, on Mother's Day that we're doing this, but Romans 1 is the story of our life. It's the story of sin apart from God. God. It's to denying the existence of God and rejecting his authority in our lives and climbing down the ladder of sin to be in a place that we're screwed without hope or help or anything. We're, we're guilty as charged. So let me leave you with a couple of thoughts. First thing I told you is that Paul's making a case for a couple of things. Sin is progressive and it's dangerous and we're all guilty of sin. Fair so far? Easy outline. Let me give you some so-whats to think about. Flirting with sin is bad, and it's a bad idea, and it always leads to more. You might think you can pull up, but you can't pull up. You have no ability to control it because sin is predatory. The little thrill you get from the little sin simply means to the human mind that the big thrill from the big sin is worth it. Get it? It's like drugs. It's true. There is pleasure in perversion. Problem is, it never tells you that there's also destruction on the other side of it. So, sin is like lays potato chips. No one can have just one. (laughs) You just want more. A little time on a porn site leads to an addiction. A little fiscal infraction leads to fraud. A second look leads to lust. You do your own version of it. And I could write my own. Every one of us know when we thought something was worth it and we knew it was wrong and we did it, and there it goes. It just adds to a big bucket of mess. Here's another thing I want you to remember. Rebellion against God always goes downhill. You will not be the exception. You will not be able to change that. If we use just simply an Old Testament character like Nebuchadnezzar, in Nebuchadnezzar 4, his problem was verse 21 on steroids. He thought he was something special. He said it out loud. God came and fixed it. So let me just remind you of Nebuchadnezzar's story. King of Babylon thought he was hot stuff, okay? And he thought it was all about him. He talked about his glory, and this is the story, okay? Okay? So there was, a, there was a dream he had. It was, it was interpreted and here's how it ended up. He's on the roof of his royal palace. And the king said this, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for my, uh, the, the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. And you shall be driven from among men, and your dwellings shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods or seven years will pass by until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he wills. And immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar, he was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird claws. The king went crazy. He went insane because he rejected the reality of God. Now, that is a true insanity, but I think it's a biblical picture of spiritual insanity that happens to all of us that reject God and say, that's sin, or that issue doesn't apply to me, and I'll do my own thing for my own happiness. So, I I think sometimes when we think about God's judgment, we think that God's really arbitrary with it. Like, God over here has this big bucket of punishment punish techniques or tools and you cross a line and he goes what do I have left in here oh I've got uh, kidney stones or I've got goiters or flat feet I could send that to him right oh oh Nebuchadnezzar what here's what I have left I have insanity you will be like a cow that's what you get um, that's not how it goes God picked insanity for one reason because Nebuchadnezzar's comment was insane spiritual insanity to say, I'm, it's for my glory. It's for my majesty. It's about me. And God's really? Well, that's the biggest nut thing I've ever heard. How about real insanity? Go be like a cow until you come to your senses and realize, I'm God, you aren't. Do you understand? Th- that's, that's the whole picture of sin. Rebellion against God is always downhill. Another truth is that sin is, makes us numb to sin. It's like an anesthesia to sin. Have you lowered your standards? Do you go places you never went? Do you look at things you never did before? Do you accept sin? Is it normal? Then I'm suggesting that the process has started. Now, that is described, what we've just gone through, the most horrible text in all the Bible because it strips us of anything and makes us guilty of everything. Sin is really that bad, but I want you to know the conclusion. What do you do? The answer to what we do is what the whole book of Romans is about. The answer of what we do is what this cover-to-cover redemptive story is all about. You need Jesus. We're all sinners. I'm a sinner. I'm twisted in my perspective. Sometimes I do what I know is wrong, and sometimes I don't do what I should be doing. Every one of us have that problem. Here's the, here's the solution. We need forgiveness of our sins. We need a Savior. We need a new mind and a new heart. Amen. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 11. He said, come to me. If you're weary, burdened, and heavy laden, come to me and I'll give you rest. Rest from the confusion and the insanity of sin, rest of striving to fix your problem, rest, rest from the judgment and the condemnation that you feel when you fail. Come to me. Romans, amazing and, and that's why you've got to hang in here for this series because we're going to climb out of this pit and it's all going to be the glory of God in Jesus Christ. But in, in chapter 5, Paul gives us a, a blush at this. He says, but God shows his love for us in this. Listen very carefully. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we now have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him From the wrath of God, which is where Paul has been making his argument all the time. Wrath of God is revealed because of our rebellion. But we'll be saved from that wrath. For if while we were enemies, we are reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now we are reconciled and saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. Sin has separated us from God. Jesus reconciles us to God because he gives us what we can't get and don't have any other way, righteousness. What we've described in chapter one says, we're all sin, twisted as far as we could possibly be twisted to such a degree that we earn God's condemnation for our sin. Where's our hope? You say it. It's Jesus. Jesus came to give his life and die in our place to satisfy God's righteous standard for our life and he took it all, he bore it all, drank every drop and didn't blink. And he gives us faith and he gives us life and forgiveness and righteousness. Without human effort, just simply by believing. If you're an unbeliever in here, like you were invited because mom it's mom's day, and you're stuck in a church and they're talking about depravity, like who wants that discussion? But somehow, maybe in the midst of this, like, God just interrupted, like, your little wonderful plan for the day. And he said, that's you. Like, that sin is on you. And that means something. Like, if you go it alone, with that condemnation on you, that judgment on you, you will have to bear the consequence of that sin. And maybe God has revealed that you're guilty. Well, I'm trust. Here's what I want you to know. Confess your sin. Agree with God that it is sin. And repent of it. By faith in Christ alone, repentance just means leaving it. Leave your sin. Trust in Jesus that he is forgiving your sins and satisfy God's standards for your, for your life. If you're a Christian here and you're trying to figure out how to apply this, well, you know. More than likely, something happened today where the Spirit said, yeah, but you're slipping too. You've moved off the dime. You used to be here and you've gotten comfortable. You're like the frog in hot water. You're at a place you never thought you'd be. Well, I'm gonna give you the same word. You ready? Repent. It's the best word anybody ever heard. All you simply have to do is say, God, it is sin and I'm leaving it and you walk free. Do you want freedom, church? Then trust in Christ. Sin is really that bad, but God's solution is 10 billion times greater in Jesus Christ, amen? Let's pray together. God, thank you so much for even the horrible experience of looking in our looking in the spiritual mirror of our life and seeing that we fall so short. And even that's a pathetic description. God, we are sinners to the core. And apart from you, we're twisted and we'll make bad look good or make look good look bad and and uh, and then sell it. God, I, I know, I know our condition. My prayer is that what we celebrate and what we love and adore is the gospel that Jesus saves sinners and that applies to all of us. By faith we receive it. Amen.